Did you know that in 2019, nearly $258 billion worth of green bonds were issued, setting a new world record? That's not bad, considering green bonds were only created 11 years prior at the World Bank. This is the Lovers for Change podcast. My name is Jimmy Gia. Today's guest is Shilpa Patel. Before her current role at ClimateWorks, she spent 32 years in Washington, D.C. at the World Bank, the IFC, and the World Resources Institute. During that time, she helped the IFC, which is a sister organization of the World Bank, underwrite their first green bond. And now, let's see how the flavor of money influences both how it's raised and how it's spent on climate-related investments. So Shilpa, thank you so much for joining us today in the podcast. Uh, it's great to get a chance to talk to you. Well, thank you for having me, Jimmy. Absolutely. So I thought I would start with your experience on green bonds. Green bonds are now 12 years old uh, since the World Bank issued them first of a kind back in 2008. And I know you were instrumental in the role in helping create it at the time. So when you reflect back on that today, did the people who were in the room making it know that it was going to be as impactful as it has ended up being? Uh, no, I don't think so. But I also just want to correct uh, one little thing, which is that it's true that the World Bank did the first green bond in 2008. I was instrumental in IFC's first green bond. Now, you know, the World Bank and IFC raise money separately and have separate balance sheets. So I and IFC doesn't have the same sort of government support and guarantees that the World Bank does. So it's extremely, it, it, it manages its balance sheet a little bit differently than the World Bank does. So IFC had not, and had been quite wary about issuing a green bond when the World Bank did it. And I think that sort of answers your question a little bit, which is that I don't think they saw green bonds as something that was there to stay. They probably didn't quite understand what this new instrument was and didn't think that it was terribly relevant for IFC. So I think what I did was really try to get the treasurer of IFC at the time to understand that this was a really significant potential instrument that had a lot, not just for fundraising, but that could, in a way, be tailored to really respond to IFC's climate-related objectives as well. Let's, you know, you're teasing out an interesting point. Let's just talk about what the difference is between World Bank and IFC. Um, World Bank Group has five different entities underneath it, of which the IFC and the World Bank are two of them. Correct. So how are their funding mechanisms different, and how does that affect what they can subsequently fund? Sure. So the World Bank is generally, you know, people refer to the World Bank in a generic way, but as you rightly pointed out, it's different institutions that make up the group. The World Bank itself is in fact IBRD, which is the International Bank for Reconstruction and Development, and also IDA, which is the International Development 
Association. And both of those are sort of collectively what people would think of when they think of the World Bank. Now, IFC, which is the International Finance Corporation, is the private sector arm of the World Bank Group. So the big difference between the two is that the World Bank, and this is both IBRD and IDA, work with the public sector. They work with governments. So they are working on public sector projects, on public sector policies, on national economies, country level programs and activities. So the money that they lend is to governments or comes with some kind of government guarantee or, or backing, uh, which is a very different risk profile than the IFC, which lends to the private sector and doesn't have that sort of government guarantee, whether explicit or implicit. So it means that the IFC is taking private sector risk in emerging markets uh, that the World Bank isn't, first of all, because it's not lending to the private sector. And second of all, because it's lending to governments or to countries, it's the country's creditworthiness that is at play. And of course, developing countries don't necessarily have the best creditworthiness, but the World Bank is often seen as the lender of last resort in many ways. Uh, and so a country is not really likely to default on a World Bank loan unless there's some extremely extenuating circumstance. So it has a very different risk profile. Let's talk a little bit about how both institutions are actually funded. The World Bank has capital, which consists of paid-in capital and also capital commitments. And those are from all its member countries in different amounts. And that represents the voting share, if you will, of the member countries. So the US, for example, would have has a much larger capital contribution than a small developing country, say the Maldives, uh, and consequently has a different weight on the board of the World Bank. So now that capital, both paid in and the commitment, basically anchors the World Bank's fundraising activities. So it raises money in capital markets by issuing bonds. And it has a AAA rating because of its fiduciary, its financial policies, but also because of this very large capital pool. Not all of it is paid in, but there is a capital commitment from every single member country. So that large capital pool really gives it a strong balance sheet and allows it to raise money on extremely favorable terms with its AAA rating. That's the money that is then lent to developing countries. Now that is IBRD. IDA raises money very differently. IDA is the soft loan arm, if you will, of the World Bank. And so IDA is essentially, for all intents and purposes, grant-like, or there's a very high grant element, let's say, to an IDA loan. So that money is raised from contributions by countries, by different countries. And so there's a, an IDA fundraising cycle that you know, raises money that, can, that, that is then provided on extremely concessional terms to the 
least developed or the poorest countries. IFC raises money similar to IBRD. So it also, you know, uses the strength of its balance sheet to raise money in capital markets by floating bonds. But it has, its credit rating depends on the health and the strength of its balance sheet, which is basically the loans, the the loans it has made to private sector enterprises in emerging markets for which it's taking the full credit risk. So IFC's risk management is a little bit different than IBRD uh, or the World Bank's risk management. I see. So the IBRD and the IFC are raising their capital in similar ways, but who they give their loan out to is different, and therefore the risk profile of what they're able to take is different. Correct. If we go back to what you did at the IFC to convince the IFC that green bonds fit within its balance sheet, yeah. Why was there an initial doubt that the World Bank green bonds for sovereigns wasn't something that the IFC, wasn't a structure that the IFC could take on for the private sector? Yeah, that's a very good question. Uh, and I think it was really just lack of familiarity and also a lack of, and, and a sort of general suspicion about something that is new and not terribly tested because don't forget the first green bond was 2008 and I started talking to our treasurer about doing an IFC green bond just a year or so later and you know there wasn't really enough uh, of, of, of data or a track record of this instrument and I think it was a question of raising awareness and also communicating that there was enough economic activity in the IFC that could be labeled green that could underpin the bond. So my role, if you will, was first to make our treasurer aware of this and that this was a good idea and a viable proposition, and then to work with the IFC treasury to set criteria, parameters, ring fencing, of proceeds of the green bond to be you know, directed towards these sorts of green activities, the monitoring and so on, and then to go on roadshows to actually sell the bond. So we finally launched the bond in 2010, and it was a fairly small issue by the standards of what is now being issued. So I think, I think the last I saw, IFC has issued over a billion dollars worth of these green bonds. So it's clearly something that has taken hold and that has proven to be successful. Could you explain just a little bit what is a green bond, how it differs from traditional bonds, and then how does it fit into the rest of the capital instruments? Right. So a green bond is basically telling the bondholder that the proceeds of that bond are going to be directed towards green activities. Now, there's no standard definition of what is a green activity. So I think each institution that's issuing these bonds kind of defines what it understand, what, what it's going to be using the proceeds of the bond for. Now, in IFC, there was a, a lot of work that was done on defining what IFC considered 
green. So there was a lot of definitional work that was done to define uh, the underlying portfolio, if you will. Now, the way that these multilateral development banks issue a green bond, the, the bond itself is actually the debt service on that bond isn't confined to the portfolio of green activity. It is actually from the general revenues of that institution. So in mm. some ways, it's not all the way there yet. So the investor can, can feel good that their money is going to finance green activities, but the debt service on that bond is actually covered by the overall revenues of the institution, not just the revenues that emerge from that green portfolio. So the activity of the green bond is still decoupled from the repayment of that debt. Exactly, exactly. It's a much better way of putting it, yes. Have you seen any innovations in that realm of trying to couple them together better? Yeah, I think in in the corporate world, uh, there's much more of this direct link. And my hope was that we would get started Uh, with a green bond with this sort of general corporate uh, uh, repayment, but a green earmarking in terms of uh, utilization, but that we would, over time, progress to actually having better metrics on the performance of the green portfolio compared to the rest of the portfolio and, you know, do a much more project bond as opposed to a corporate a bond. But then, you know, that was then I left IFC in at the end of 2011. And I don't think that that is where the institution has gone. And there might actually be statutory reasons for not doing these sorts of earmarked fundraising. But in the corporate world, uh, definitely, that is something that can that can happen and is happening. You know, and since your time at the IFC working on this green bond, you were mentioning how much of this depends on how you define green. From your career, have you seen the definition of green change and evolve over time? Yes, I think so. I mean, I think, for instance, very early on, renewable energy, hydro was was always a bit controversial if you're talking of large hydro, but most people would consider hydro energy to be clean energy. I think that most people now would say, okay, if it's runoff river hydro, that's fine. But if it's a large dam, it's not fine, just because of all the other environmental potential issues involved with these large hydropower projects. So I think that there has been some evolution. I think standards are probably getting stricter or, or the definitions are getting tighter than, than when we first started, I would think. Getting back to that, the first issuance, what makes it fascinating to me is that I'm sure you had to get a lot of sign-off within a large institution like the IFC. Who were all of the stakeholders that you had to pull together and get the, the yes from in order to get something like this implemented? Actually, the key was to convince the treasurer and, of course, the treasurer's key management, uh, the, the treasurer's executive team, if you will. And once they were on board, or once they had said, okay, we're prepared to look further into this, 
Then it was a question of getting the financial, the, the, the treasury staff who really knew a lot about raising money and issuing bonds, but didn't know very much about IFC's green activities. It was then getting them on board to see that this was, you know, to really buy in to this. Uh, so it was that effort. And then there was the effort of actually having my own management, my own boss, say that this was a good thing for me to spend my time on. And you know, that way it could be uh, attributed, I guess, right? The thing is that I was in the, in the environment department. So I was already preaching to the converted in terms of the need for green. So I don't think that I had a whole lot of selling to do internally in, with my group. I think the selling was more with treasury. But the thing about IFC and the World Bank, at least based on my personal experience, Jimmy, is that if you had an idea and you had thought it through and you could show that it made sense, you did have a lot of freedom to pursue it. These institutions give the impression of being very large monoliths, bureaucratic, uh, lots of procedures, but in fact, there is a lot of innovation that happens in them. And that innovation is not a top-down thing. I mean, it's something, somebody has an idea and they pursue it and they're able to sell it. So I think it's a very special kind of atmosphere that lets that happen. Why do you think it is able to breed innovation? You know, we don't think of these large NGOs as innovative, but yet what within the, the machine, what allows that breeding of innovation? I mean, that's a very good question and something that I've been uh, wondering. I don't really know, but I can venture forth a few thoughts uh, and ideas. First, I think, is the mission of the institution, right? It, it, it attracts people who are really deeply passionate about development. So they come in there with a desire to do something that, that is going to deliver good development outcomes. The second thing is that, that these institutions attract people from all over the world, pretty bright people who come in there and who I think, and this is just, just speaking from my own personal experience, is at some point, you know, you want to push yourself and you want to, you've got all this energy that gets directed towards uh, a challenge. And so I think that could be part of the reason why this sort of innovation happens. But think of all the innovation that's come out of the World Bank group, okay? I don't know if you know, but the first foreign exchange swap was done by the World Bank. I think back in the early 80s, the green bonds we already spoke about, I was involved in a securitization of tuition uh, receivables for a private university in Chile, for example, that had never been done in a developing country before. If you look at the environmental and social stewardship, so the IFC's performance standards are the basis of the equator principles that any number of financial institutions now follow in, in, in terms of their environmental and social governance. Uh, if you look at the carbon business, that the World Bank created uh, the Carbon Prototype Fund 
back in 1999, way before the Kyoto Protocol actually came into effect. And there again, it was one person who had an idea, who developed it, worked it, and was able to convince uh, leadership that this was something worth investing in. I, I, I don't know. It, it, and it, it could also be that you're surrounded by people who are all sort of motivated by a very similar end game or end objective. And you have a lot of opportunity for an exchange of ideas and for just learning uh, from others. So I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it does have people represented from all countries. And so you definitely get that type of a melting pot of different backgrounds and different just experiences. Yet, I guess the, the two things that come to mind is, first of all, that the, the hierarchy and the bureaucraticness of large institutions didn't slow down these innovations that made it through. No, no, uh, th that's absolutely right. And I think that, I mean, now with uh, having, uh, being outside the institutions and, you know, seeing it um, a little bit uh, with, with a little bit of distance, um, I think that I personally felt that the pace of change, if you will, or the pace of accept or acceptance of some of these new ideas was slow in the World Bank. But I think in hindsight, it actually was possible to do. And it was frankly not that slow uh, because the pace of change outside the World Bank isn't terribly fast either. So in some ways it's normalized now that you've had both experiences, you can reflect on what it was like inside and what it's like in the market. Yeah, a little bit, I think. But, you know, you also have to take everything I say with a little pinch of salt because you know how it is. Human beings have a tendency to remember all the good things and forget <laughs> all the bad things. So I'm pretty sure that when I was actually trying to push some of this stuff through, I, might, I must have been terribly frustrated as well. But, you know, one conveniently forgets all that. <laughs> it's just like one, yeah, conveniently forgets all the innovations that didn't get accepted by the hierarchy, but exactly. the ones that made it through obviously had an easy path. Yeah. Or if they didn't have an easy path, you know, they're successful and then you just remember, you know, you bask in the glory of that success, not really, and you forget all the pain that it took to get there. So I wanted to ask about your role as the first chief of climate change within the IFC. You mentioned that you were already working within the environmental sector of the IFC. Why was it important to create a specific climate change lens on top of the environmental focus that it already had? It's an interesting development. So I think that IFC had been sort of working on environmental finance, but a little bit in the background, pretty much an off balance sheet activity actually for IFC. And I think that this, this was sort of in the late 90s, early 2000s, and that finance practice emerged, which I started managing from 2004 onwards. And I think several things were happening around this time, right? So you had an increasing interest in climate on the part of other stakeholders, uh, including member countries for the World Bank. Then you had within IFC a realization that environmental businesses could be viable and that 
there was a sense that mainstream business of IFC could become, you know, could, could integrate certain environmental businesses uh, or, or practices or be built on environmental business. There was an increasing, as I said, international attention to climate with the Kyoto Protocol and the carbon trading, the carbon business. And I think what started emerging is that climate change was really a huge development challenge and that IFC had to look at climate uh, and had to look at things from a climate lens, both for its own portfolio, but also in terms of the kinds of activities it was financing. And so that's why I think the a decision was made to create a focus, a, a focal point on climate within the institution and the climate change unit, if you will, was then created. It was back in 2008. You know, and one thing that strikes me is just the scale of dollar values that people are talking about here. We're talking green bonds issuance in the billions of dollars. But yet when you look at the UN SDGs and what the estimates are, we're talking trillions of dollars or a thousand times the order of magnitude. Even the billions that are being poured in, is it still superficial? And what do you think is going to be needed to make people commit to making those investments? I certainly don't think we're investing enough. I think that there's lots of estimates of what it's going to take to really decarbonize. And I think we really have to decarbonize. We can't continue on this emissions trajectory. I think that our ability to measure what's actually getting invested is, is quite limited. We don't have very good information. I mean, there are entities that try, for example, the Climate Policy Institute's landscape of climate finance is something that's very interesting, but there are huge data gaps. So we don't really know. The other thing is, I'm not sure that we are all employing the same definitions when we talk about climate-related investment. And it's very hard now, I think, to make a clear line between, you know, what's an investment that has taken climate into account and uh, what's an investment that hasn't? I mean, we, we just have a whole lot of measurement problems quite apart from anything else. But I do think that we are not set on a path to decarbonization. And I do think that not enough money is going where it needs to go and that a lot of money is still going on activities and that, that are really very harmful for the environment and not consistent with even a two degree path, much less a 1.5 degree uh, path. It's interesting you mentioned the multiple definitions of what sustainable investments might be. I mean, you were at the World Bank, the IFC, the World Resources Institute, now Climate Works. How have you seen the definitions change as you go from institution to institution? Give you an example. At IFC, we recognize that there is going to be some development that's carbon intensive. We still don't have a decent substitute for cement or for steel. And these are commodities that are, are, are necessary for infrastructure and, and, and so on. So the challenge then is how do you manage the emissions of an entire portfolio 
recognizing that you will have to make trade-offs. And the whole idea then is to say, all right, if we have to do some emitting activities because it's hard to think of development without it, then can we at least make sure that it's best in class or it's the least harmful possible? So then that again brings up definitions and measurement metrics. What do you compare it to, right? So that's, uh, that, that's one thing. Now, many people would argue that investing in cement, no matter how environmentally responsible you can make it, because it has very high emissions involved, is simply not a green or a clean investment. I don't want to get into the middle of those kinds of definitional issues, but I think that the farther away you go from actual practical investments and having to deal with development, the more pure you can become in your definitions of what constitutes acceptability. Does that make sense? It does, because when you have to put money to work, put money where your mouth is, essentially, you're really looking at, you can't get around vocabulary anymore. It's a yes or no. Right. Is that what you mean? That's a little bit what I mean. And it's also saying this is, and maybe that it, it's this, that this is going to get financed. If it's not financed by an IFC or an EBRD or another MDB that at least has a commitment to following environmental, social, uh, decent environmental and social practice that has a commitment to you know governance issues and so on mm. it's going to get financed by somebody else so what's the lesser evil that's one sort of train of thought the other train of thought is that if institutions like these multilateral development banks who are seen to be thought leaders in in terms of investment in emerging markets if they don't lead with a harder hitting kind of green agenda then who will i think it's a question of finding a balance between these two points of view. From your point of view, looking at what some of the banks have been declaring, like Standard Charter, Bank of America and whatnot, saying that they will no longer fund coal or no longer fund certain infrastructures, what does that make you feel in terms of, I guess, cost of capitals for that type of infrastructure? Is that a, a positive development or is that kind of what you're saying is, if I can't get my money from this person, I'll go get it from someone else that hasn't made that promise yet? Exactly. I think that that's, and I, I think that's what's happening. I mean, I think the World Bank, for example, uh, said no more coal. And I think IFC, I don't think any of these large uh, multilateral banks is financing coal, certainly not new coal. They might be, you know, refurbishing old coal. I don't know. But, you know, there's no, there's, there's any number of countries that have coal technology that they want to sell that are prepared to fund coal. And then you don't know that they're funding uh, best in class or the most efficient coal generation that is available. They are funding, the they are providing the technology that they have or that they want to monetize in some ways. So I, I, I don't know. What's the solution? And, and I don't know that they are adhering to the same environmental and social standards as, let's say, a, a World Bank would. Uh, I, I don't know. Well, it goes to show just the messiness of the stakeholders, of people who are involved. 
and how fragmented the decision making is. Yeah, and also it 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 goes to show you know how fraught these sorts of decisions can be and how damaging potentially to a country's finances. If you've got if you've got infrastructure that somebody has funded and you you can no longer uh, service the debt that's associated with it, then that funder basically takes possession of that infrastructure. We're seeing some of that happening in, in Africa, for instance. Whereas if it's a multilateral development bank that has funded it, by and large, if a country is unable to meet its debt obligations, then there will be some kind of systematic debt restructuring process. There will be some kind of uh, debt relief, which doesn't happen with other creditors necessarily. And so then it seems like with your work at the World Bank was a lot of bringing different stakeholders together. And it seems like you're still doing that today at ClimateWorks. Pulling different people together is just a different stakeholder list. Yeah, I mean, it's, and it's, uh, that's the, I think that's correct. And I think, I think it sort of harkens back to, uh, you know, my, my educational training and just my sort of experience. I mean, I'm a generalist. Yeah, I have an MBA. And I think I've always wondered, you know, what is it that an MBA gives you? Because it doesn't really give you deep subject matter expertise in anything. At least if it does, then I clearly missed out. <laughs> but um, I, I think it gives you an analytical framework, you know, and I think it gives you the ability to integrate different streams that are relevant to your decision making. And so I think that those are, those are good skills to have if you're a generalist and if you're a project manager, which is essentially what I was in the World Bank and in, and in IFC. And I think that those skills are what I bring to my job here at ClimateWorks is I think that the private sector can play and should play a much bigger role in investments that are clean and that deliver societal benefits. And my whole career, in a way, has been about how do you get that private sector to step up to the plate and what is it that that private sector needs? Because at the end of the day, they're not going to do it out of the goodness of their hearts. They have to make money. So how do you reconcile the making money part with the delivering environmental and social benefit part? And that's really, I think, where philanthropy can play a very big role uh, in terms of catalyzing and mobilizing the private sector. Do you have an example of that happening? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, I think a lot of the mission investment that philanthropic foundations make, if not all of it, is very much geared towards catalyzing other sources of, of capital. And sometimes the mission investment piece will take either a slightly higher risk or will accept a slightly lower return in a blended uh, sort of pool. But that is what, that's the sort of secret sauce, if you will, that makes the whole thing happen. So that's very much, I think, the sort of catalytic role that development finance can play, which is what I did at IFC, but it's also the kind of thing that philanthropic investment can play, which is what I'm trying to do here. 
do you see the pathway that these public and private organizations are taking or the emphasis of where they're placing their money to be different? I think that they are, yes, it, it is a little bit different. I think certainly from IFC, I think at IFC, we, uh, the, the, the philosophy was that, you know, you looked at the financial return, but you also looked at trying to maximize these other gains, uh, other benefits and other, other impacts. I think, I mean, first of all, I, I don't think the philanthropic community is one homogeneous being. I think that different foundations have different investment philosophies and are guided by different uh, objectives. But I think that there is much more of a focus on impact and less on maximizing a financial return given the impact. Uh, I, I, I'm not making a lot of sense here, but it's, I think it's a question of nuance. Primary driver, I think, is, isn't financial return. I'm not saying the primary driver at IFC was financial return, but there had to be a decent financial return because the other things were almost sort of expected. It really goes to show the nuance of risk-reward and how it influences the type of money that you have to go, you're able to underwrite and able to give out. Yeah, I think at IFC, because it was very important to protect its balance sheet, to keep its AAA rating, there's a different, there's more of a commercial approach. I think when you're talking of philanthropic investment, not all of it is, is on the balance sheet. So it's, I think it's probably a different approach. Throughout your entire career, what were the areas that you have found where you could make decisions really fast? And what were areas where you really had to slow things down and say, no, we need to take our time and really you know, take our time on this decision? Hmm, that's a very difficult question, actually, because I'm not sure that a decision that is, you know, that seems to have the support of the team. Because remember, you, ha you, you very rarely do these things solo, right? You, you're at least, you know, you, you have a team of people that you talk to and you have, so, it's, it's a, so something that seems to have the overall support of the team is a much easier decision to take than something where there is a lot of dissonance or dissent. So I, I, I don't know, that's not a very satisfactory answer, but yeah. But I, I find it an intriguing answer because what it's saying is, although the, de the decision can be really fast, when the stakeholder engagement already occurred. I would say so. I think that decisions where you don't really have broad buy-in, well, sometimes I suppose they're necessary, but by and large, I think in the environments that I've had to work with and the kinds of things that I've had to work with, there's never really been that sort of life or death situation where you have to make a very quick decision that where you don't have the time to consult people. Well, you and I did talk about some of the work you did with plagues and locusts. Yes. And, and yeah. Would you consider that? and emergency loans to be something where things have to happen really fast? Like, well, do you yeah. still have to get stakeholder agreements for that to happen? 
Well, you you do. I mean, uh, certainly when I was at the World Bank at the time, and you know, you did have to get the World Bank's board to sign off, and you had to get you know your before you even got there, you had to get your management to sign off, and you couldn't really you you, you could bend some procedures because of the speed of the thing uh, and the need for doing it quickly, but you couldn't bend all of them. So, you know, you had to certainly do the basic governance kinds of issues. You have to address those. So, but I think what happens in an emergency situation like that is that all the stakeholders rally around and understand that this is something that needs very quick decision-making. So you're not really doing this alone. You've got the whole, you've got support and people are looking to help you get there. They're not looking to, you know, throw curveballs at you. Do you have any examples of where decisions, you really had to slow them down and really go, not yet, let's think about this a little bit more. I would say more that it was the institution that slowed me down. And so therefore I had to slow down. But Mm. one of the things that I worked on very hard at IFC was to try and get a sort of a greenhouse gas accounting uh, system developed, you know, and, and I wanted every single loan, any, every single investment that IFC made, be it a loan or equity, to actually have a greenhouse gas emissions calculation associated with it. I thought that the institution was ready for it at my pace, and it, it wasn't. And so that really was an instance of which, you know, I had to slow down because uh, I, I wasn't able to get it, to, to push it through in this, at the speed and in the timelines that I wanted. So as you look back now, as your career, what do you see are the biggest needs for future expertise? I think one thing that I've come to realize is that you have to be very adaptable. You have to be able to change course and you have to take the situation and the facts as you find them and then uh, deal with them. You you can't be wedded to just one way of of doing something. Uh, I mean, let's just look at this health emergency, how things have been totally upended and, you know, how we do things has changed quite dramatically. So you have to be very adaptable. And I would say that that's really a mindset capacity that you have change is just something that is a constant and much Mm -hmm. more so I think than when I first started working. I feel now that we're in a bit of a roller coaster and it's just going to get worse with climate change. So we've got to learn to be really nimble. Where where do you think people can best enter the sector? You mean climate or environment? Yeah, uh, climate finance. Climate finance. There's so many entry points now. I think the financial sector as a whole recognizes that this is really a critical thing that we're going to have to deal with. So you could do it in banks, you could do it uh, certainly in an investment bank, you could try working with you know, private equity or funds that uh, are focused on environment and climate. You could do it through philanthropy, uh, you could do it through a think tank, like WRI, you could certainly do it through the multilateral development banks. All of them have climate as a priority. 
any, there's, there's just so many different avenues, much more so than I think when I started working on climate. Yeah, I was going to say that must be a heartwarming evolution that you have witnessed over your career. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that there's climates now kind of being incorporated into so many, even the, I mean, the corporate set, you know, the corporate uh, world is very much looking into this. And very frankly, even oil and gas majors are, are people who look at climate and, and what that's going to do to their business. So I think you can influence or you can work on climate finance in so many different ways now. Have you seen any sector or area that climate hasn't infiltrated yet? Hmm. I think that there are sectors that outwardly say they're not looking hmm. at climate, but inwardly actually are. And I would and then there are people who say that they are looking at climate, but a lot of that is greenwashing. Mm. But it's very hard to kind of know, you know, are these, are these people being sincere or is this sort of just, you know, lip service? I'm trying to think, uh, you know, is there a sector that is not in some way thinking about climate? And honestly, I don't think so. That's good to know as well, to know that pretty much everyone is thinking about it in one way or another. Yeah, I think some are more actively thinking about it than others, but others can't be immune to the impact that climate's already having uh, on their uh, supply chains, on their inputs, on, you know, their markets, I mean, whatever, their logistics, you know. Any last words of advice? No, but thank you very much for listening to me and having me. Well, thank you for sharing your thoughts. You have been listening to the Levers for Change podcast, where we search for who has responsibility for what when implementing change. My name is Jimmy Gia, and the music is by Sean Hart. Please subscribe to our podcast for new episodes and share with a friend. Please visit our website at www.leversforchangepodcast.com for additional episodes, books, and other resources. Thank you again. And remember, when trying to change the world, search for your levers for change. Music